The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Well, we made it to the end of our, almost to the end of our community practice intensive, and uh, you know, given that there are about 50 of us, give or take, doing this together, we probably have had almost every experience under the sun, feeling really empowered by our efforts and the inevitable positive fruits of our effort to practice, feeling humiliated and feeling like a failure and feeling like, oh, here I go again, setting myself up for some self-improvement project only to be bitterly disappointed can't do anything, and and hopefully around all of that, up and down, joy and sorrow, the twists and turns of our twisted karma, <laughs> we had a serene smile in the background. Oh yeah, this is how it is. This is what a human life looks like and feels like. And I know, uh, I'm guessing all of you here are here for the day, but I know that some of you on Zoom have other obligations you can't get out of. So, But we have this time, whatever it is, eight hours, maybe a little bit less. And uh, we have this theme that we've all been working with these last couple weeks on faith, confidence, And it's really useful to dedicate this time to moving beyond any idealistic notions and just presuming that we can use our life as a, this life, this time right now, as a way to, what is worthy for me to place my heart on? What's trustworthy? And how do I go from a a kind of borrowed faith or confidence because somebody who seems somewhat trustworthy is saying something and it makes a little bit of sense, so I'm going to presume maybe there's some truth to it. How do I go from that to a confidence that's independent? Like, no, I've seen this in my own experience. It doesn't really matter if other people disagree with me because I've really seen it. I've seen it more than once. I have a lot of confidence in my experience. I can trust what my experience has taught me. And one of the essential points from the Buddhist teachings is the lawfulness or the conditional nature of things. So if we cultivate the stability of present moment awareness, in a way it sets up this capacity to discern or read comprehend the lawfulness. When there's this, there's that. With the arising of this comes the arising of that. When there isn't this, this other thing isn't there. When this thing, this experience, this quality of mind ceases, these other things cease as well. This is how the Buddha describes conditionality or the lawfulness. And otherwise, you know, some... In some philosophical circles, there's this sense of 
you know, predestination or things are determined in some way, and it can really lend itself to helplessness and giving up and why bother and other kinds of cynical attitudes. And what I think it's fair to say, what wise people have come to understand throughout history is this simple point that the Buddha is making. We live in a lawful, conditional universe. We don't get to master it and bend everything to our will, but we get to participate, right, in the unfolding. When there's this, there's that. With the arising of this, there's the arising of that. So it's like, okay, in my life, what sort of seeds, tendencies are getting planted, set in motion? What are going to be the natural, conditional, lawful consequences of having this attitude of mind right now? Or of abandoning this attitude of mind right now? And it doesn't mean we're in control, but what really allows the mind to begin to shape how things unfold, this is kind of the discovery, one of the deep discoveries from the Buddha and other wise people, is that seeing the unskillfulness of some quality that's established in the mind is the cause for it to be abandoned. You and I, we don't actually abandon bad habits when they're there in the mind. But what wisdom can do is see clearly with compassion, with understanding, this is not helpful. This is an unskillful, unhelpful quality in the mind. When it's there, these other tendencies follow, these other experiences tend to follow. And it's seeing that that allows for an organic letting go. Nobody lets go. That's why we get so frustrated. We want to go right from seeing that something's unskillful to letting it go. But it's a misunderstanding of the conditional nature. There isn't somebody who lets go. There's just a web of natural processes, lawful natural processes. And what allows for letting go is seeing the unskillfulness. What allows for the development of habit is seeing clearly the benefits. So when we're naturally, we bump into being a kind human being for some moments, you might want to grab, oh, I always want to be this kind. This is who I want to be. But that doesn't lead to becoming a kind person. What really leads to becoming a kind person is when there is kindness, you notice how functional and beneficial it is, how everything works a little bit better. And when the mind, when wisdom really sees that, that tendency gets strengthened. In the same way when we see an unskillful tendency clearly without judgment, it gets weakened. Try to have a very honest, clear, forgiving, non-judgmental um, comprehension of your worst habits and see what happens to them. I mean, this is the thing. We've got to test it out to see if this is worthy of faith, of confidence. Oh, yeah, I live in a lawful universe. There is a way for me to participate. I'm not helpless. And that's, that's a huge thing because 
truthfully, don't you think it's true that mostly, most of the time, most of us have some sort of cynical attitude going on? And it may not appear to us that we're cynical, but when we look at how we spend our time doing things that we know don't lead to lasting happiness, yet we're very content to spend hours looking at news we don't need to read or watching TV programs we don't need to watch or having conversations. I mean, we fill up, honestly, don't we? We fill up the space of our lives in ways that we don't know, we know probably aren't leading anywhere that has deep value. So it is a little cynical to do that in the sense that it's presuming there isn't something better to be doing with this human life. There isn't something to be cultivating. And as the Buddha says, cultivating something that delivers in the beginning, the middle, and the end. It's not like, well, you've got to cultivate it for about 100,000 lifetimes, and then you get your delivery, <laughs> you know, all the good stuff comes. But the, the whole point is that the benefits roll along as we're doing it, because it's lawful. Just like, even in little ways, when my mind, I get a, a little opor me story going in my mind which is not uncommon for this, the way this spine's conditioned. And if, even in a little way, my mind begins to indulge that oh poor me story. The grip is right there. Like the, it's like a perfect feedback. Like that, now that doesn't mean we notice the heaviness and the tightness of the oh poor me story, because we're seduced by the surface level of the story, oh poor me, and I mean really, oh poor me, <laughs> right? So we don't, wisdom isn't able to sort of feel into the, the natural, inevitable consequence of the oh poor me story. That's right there, in that moment, not later. And it's the same thing with any movement towards clarity, towards calm, towards forgiveness, towards kindness, towards a more inclusive presence, openness. The releasing of any psychic weight, the freedom from the grip, is apparent right in the beginning, in the middle, in the end. Right. So this is really goes to the heart of how we practice, is we need the stability of present moment awareness to be able to read cause and effect, the conditional nature. Because it's only then when the feedback mechanisms are discernible. And then the whole awakening, liberation process, whatever you want to call it, it happens on its own, but it depends that on that the heart, the mind, is stable and sensitive enough to be in touch with the natural feedback mechanisms. Because if we're disconnected, if we're on the surface, distracted, awareness flitting about, we don't have that continuity of presence, then we're kind of under the 
um, the power of whatever whim, whatever idea has gotten to the forefront of the mind, and it's in a sense disconnected from the lawfulness of cause and effect. There is no wisdom without the mind, wisdom discerning cause and effect, the conditional nature. Otherwise, it's like we're holding to an idea. The idea may be relatively toxic or it may be relatively skillful, but there's really, even if it's a relatively skillful idea, well, I should be kind. But for my mind to grip it as sort of like a, a truth to cling to doesn't help me come, become a more kind human being. In fact, you know, funny things start to happen, like somebody makes us angry, and so we get angry at them. You ruined my kindness. I was aspiring to be a kind person, and you made me angry. How dare you? <laughs> I mean, it really, ridiculous like, stuff like that happens. So just a few things to reflect on today as we contemplate faith. So first thing, and, and I think these are okay ideas to bring forward in a natural way, just as a way of, of doing a reset. So is there something for me in my life, like right now, to be cultivating? Am I content to just sort of be pushed around by the ups and downs in life, or do I want to intentionally cultivate what seems to me, imperfectly, is worthy of being cultivated, and to abandon what seems to me is worthy of being abandoned. Do I want to be a participant or a helpless victim in life? You see, that's the first thing to have faith in. And interestingly, the way that's talked about in early Buddhism is uh, arising out of having a more honest relationship with dukkha, with suffering in life. Because when we, when we actually look at how behind so much of my experience there's tension and heaviness and the grip of fear and the grip of anxiety and the grip of unworthiness and the grip of loneliness and, you know, all those different versions of being tight, then it, when we're honest about the tightness, then wisdom can imagine putting it down. Right? So in a way, it's the, the beginning of a spiritual life is to realize there's tightness, and I wonder if it can be put down. There's a grip, there's a sense, the pain of separation, and I'm wondering if there's something other than that. And the Buddha says this is the birth of faith or confidence, that we have a, a, an honest enough relationship with being an uneasy human being that we're, the mind, wisdom, is willing to contemplate not this. We don't know what not this is. We just know it's not this grip, not this weight, not this heaviness. And you can put some of the folding chairs away too, because I think we have some extra if you want. Or you could go on the carpet over here, yeah.
So that's the first thing. It's like any time today, if you feel somewhat of a grip in your heart, then just do that, turn it around like, oh, this is a problem, I'm tight, I gotta get rid of this tightness. It's like, okay, there's this tightness. Is this, like, do I, do I have any certainty that this is the only way it is? I'm just totally screwed. Because if that's the case, then distraction actually seems like a worthwhile strategy. Like if we're just condemned to suffering, then anything that can take my mind off of it gives, gives us a little break. But if we have enough interests, when we look and feel into the dukkha, not the story about it, but the actual experience, right then, just with some stability of present moment awareness, there's some intuition, the heaviness of this, the grip of this, the pain of this. There's some intuition. It isn't what it appears to be, like that it's more ephemeral, less personal. But that intuition doesn't arise until we are fortunate enough to have real curiosity about our own personal suffering, whatever that looks like for each of us. We have to have enough safety. What's going on? Honey, what are you feeling? <laughs> What's the feeling here? Can I be with this? Can I relax with this? What am I not seeing, acknowledging that's here? I just want to be close. That kind of personal, very personal turning toward the quality of our own heart. So that, in, from the Buddhist teachings, is the birthplace of real spiritual, let's call it spiritual faith or spiritual confidence. And then when we have some of that confidence, then it, then it just naturally leads to the sort of deepening of that faith or confidence, like having faith and the functionality of being present, the stability of present moment awareness. And just getting clearer and clearer, what does it mean to be present? And why is it so powerful? Not intellectually, why is it so powerful, but experientially, what happens when the mind is reflectively aware, oh, it's this experience being felt, being known. There's something about how it lifts the awareness, the wisdom out of the enmeshment, the oh, poor me. I mean, you, we do it with pleasant experience too, so it isn't always oh, poor me, but oh, I, this is mine. <laughs> don't, I don't want, I want to indulge in it. But, we realize that move of mindful awareness, oh, this is an experience being known. And remember, we always think of it as the observer being outside the experience, but that's not our subjective experience. When we have that simple move of being aware, oh, it's like this now. Look, the experience of awareness is right in the middle. It's not from some observation post, gazing over at Mark's life. Oh, it's like this, right in the middle of the experience. It's like this. It's like this. 
And so another place for confidence and faith is just the functionality of being able to do that, to go from distraction to a moment of mindful awareness. It's like this now. This is an experience that's being felt, that's being known. And if there's an attitude about that, this attitude is being known and being felt, here and now. And if the mind has some real doubt, like, what's the point? This doubt is something being known, here and now. And the key about that development of faith and awareness is to see that it's always available. It always is the next seed to plant. Oh, this is being known. So that's the second thing. So the first is about dukkha, an honest relationship with dukkha, and intuiting, I don't really have evidence that I'm totally condemned to suffering. Maybe there's dukkha, and there's a letting go of dukkha, a releasing of... And that's, that's how the Buddha summed up his teaching. I teach dukkha and the ending of dukkha. Suffering and the release of suffering. That's all I care about. Remember there's that story with all the leaves in the forest. He says, I, I know a lot of stuff, but I only teach a few things. Suffering and the end of suffering. Because that's all that's relevant to human beings. That's what human beings care about. They don't care about mystical truths about, like, like I was reading, it always comes up every once in a while, like, are we all in a simulation, like a virtual reality? You know, it's like, no, what we care about is, this heart's in a grip, can it release? And when, the, when our heart is released, a lot of these things don't matter. If we're in a simulated universe or multiverse. Or and we just find that when the heart is released, at least to some degree, all the wholesome qualities of kindness and caring about each other and taking care and addressing the pain and injustice, it just comes naturally to the mind. It's not forced. Just a couple more points before we do some sitting together. You know, and related to that confidence and awareness, the second point is this confidence in sustaining awareness. Like we see it's an exponential curve, if you remember some of your high school um, algebra maybe, you know, about exponential curves. It's like you have a few moments of mindful presence, really powerful. You have a few more, many times more powerful. You get a couple minutes of continuity of present moment awareness. It's literally life-changing because it's the continuity of present moment awareness that just opens everything up so the mind or wisdom sees what it hasn't seen before. Now, we all know, I mean, anybody who's been at this for a while knows, it's not easy to have real continuity of present moment awareness. And the way we define a beginner, a beginner practitioner thinks they have the continuity of present moment awareness. And an experienced Buddhist meditator doing this kind of practice knows how unusual and powerful having the continuity of present moment awareness is. It's life-changing when you get some continuity. 
Because secrets can't be held when there's continuity of awareness. There are no lives, no hidden sacred cows in our own mind. Everything is stripped away, opened up. And we see the underlying nature. In Buddhism, we talk about it as the three characteristics of the ephemeralness, how nothing, anything gripped, any attachment is the cause for suffering, and it's all natural process. doesn't refer back, nothing refers back to anybody. And we can know that intellectually, but it's, it's a completely different world to see it directly. It really undermines, deeply undermines, the habit of framing things in a self-centered way, which is so liberating. And the last thing I want to say is just uh, kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about the pleasure as an essential part of the feedback mechanism. So when we have some confidence that there's something to cultivate, some seeds to plant, some way to use my mind, to use awareness, and really get clear, have faith in the power, the usefulness of mindful awareness and the continuity of mindful awareness, then to find our way to follow the path, we rely on pleasure. But not the pleasure we get from seeking out nice sense experiences, which is real. There are pleasures when we gratify our sense desires, no doubt about it. We don't want to deny or belittle. Even hearing the sound of the rain is a pleasure. We should take advantage of all of the resources and work that went into making this place. This was a garage, this room. <laughs> so, you know, and that all of you at home and all the work you've done to create a nice living space for yourselves, these are important pleasures, but they're limited. They're to use, to derive some safety from, some pleasure from, but to, it's just like a holding zone so we can do the deeper work. What kind of um, experience isn't dependent, can't be taken away, for example? So we have to follow a different pleasure that sort of draws us in, and it's the pleasure of goodness. So like being on retreat together is a good thing. And we can tune in, like, and it's these pleasures I'm talking about now are more about what we're not doing. I'm not causing harm being on retreat. We're eating vegetarian food, we're taking care of each other, living together harmoniously. We're not speaking very much on retreat, right? We practice noble silence. For those of you at home, it will look a particular way if you have roommates. But just all of us shutting down our cell phones or putting it on airplane mode for the day, not looking at things we don't need to look at. If you're at home with some of your roommates, just using talking when it's functional, letting them know that I'll talk to you later in the evening after the retreat's over about that. But right now I'm keeping more quiet today. So don't, you know, you can use those sort of little interactions to create this quiet environment here, unless you're helping out in the kitchen. 
you know, for these hours, we're just going to keep silent together. And you want to notice like, oh, I'm living harmoniously. I'm not causing harm. I'm good. Right now, I'm not actively doing bad, and that feels good. Now, it, it doesn't stand out, but, but we really want to notice that goodness. And the same thing like when our mind isn't agitated, isn't obsessing about this and that, is just more spacious and settled, you want to notice, oh, this is calm. This is a non-agitated mind. This is good. So there's the pleasure of non-harming. In Buddhism, they give it a nice title, the bliss of blamelessness. doesn't mean you haven't done bad stuff in your life that you have some regrets about. It just means right now, I don't have regrets about how I'm living. And that feels good. That's a taste of that bliss of blamelessness. And if I did this for 40 years, I could probably expect that that bliss of blamelessness would be a pretty dominant quality in my mind. I've been pretty careful about my moral acts. I clearly have made some mistakes. But, you know, I've been really attentive for 40 years um, since being a young adult. And uh, I feel really good about that. You know, I don't cheat on my taxes. I just pay my fair share. I don't take things that aren't mine. I try to make amends when I use words that cause harm. And that feels good, that bliss of blamelessness. And that helps us along the way. Because then when I do act out now, it really stands out. Oh, I said that. I didn't do that. It kind of haunts me in just the right way that I can take care of it. Fix it if I can. And then the, the happiness of calm is like when we know a mind that isn't agitated, then as soon as we start to agitate the mind, it stands out. And then it's clear, that choice, no, no, no. The happiness of calm, of non-agitation, is to be appreciated. And then the deepest kind of inner happiness is the happiness of non-grasping, of non-attachment. Like the heart that... Now when we say let go, it doesn't mean you have to give me your favorite pair of pants or your new cell phone or... You know, it means that we're letting go of the attachment, the clinging, the dependence. So we can have nice things, but we have to be okay about them going away. You buy a new car, and you know it's going to go away. Every time I drive it, there's a 1 in 263 chance that it's going to, you know, whatever the odds are, right? And it's so, and we know that there are more than 263 people driving, so somebody's going to have a rear end crash or something like that. And it isn't, there isn't anything I can really do about it. So I'm not going to be surprised when I'm that one in 263 and my car gets smashed or my life gets taken away or I'm the one with cancer and not my friend or I'm the one whose partner 
doesn't want to be with them anymore, or whatever it is. So we live as, every, as if everything's already broken, and that's that happiness of non-attachment. And you can just look today. It's like, to whatever degree you're appreciating the good things in your life, but you know you can't hold on to anything, and you really feel some space of non-attachment, then notice the pleasure of that non-dependence. So those three pleasures are conducive of a lot of faith. The pleasure of being good, of wholesomeness, of non-harming. The pleasure of non a mind that isn't agitated, that's settled and clear and calm. And the happiness, the pleasure of non-attachment. Knowing that this heart knows how to let go. This heart knows better than to cling to anything. Doesn't mean I won't appreciate what's offered. You hand me ice cream, I'll probably eat it. I hope, hopefully we'll enjoy it. But if you take it away in the middle, I'd like to think that I'd be okay with that. Oh yeah, ice cream comes, ice cream goes. <laughs> you know, it's like the sun breaks through. We'd be really appreciative, and we know, but it's just a matter of time, especially if you looked at the weather today, before the clouds roll in again, because it's supposed to rain all day long. So that gives us a little to work with today as we continue our contemplation on causes for faith, how to keep confidence or faith in mind. It's really the engine. And of course, faith can be misused, but only if it's borrowed faith. The key is we want to have our faith grounded in our own experience. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.